Chapter 5 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 5 The Ruby Ring. An exhausting exertion that is pleasurable that calls in play the capabilities of the spirit which when they rise to the heights of genius ever clamour for the burst of action usually leaves no lasting sense of prostration and then youth has wondrous recuperative powers sylvie rose refreshed the next morning and free from every lingering trace of fever madame de la roche with trembling solicitude felt her hands and counted her pulse over and over again but she was forced to admit that the hands were cool and the pulse temperate and that her daughter never looked so well or so happy the frugal breakfast was unusually prolonged that morning sylvie seemed serenely joyful and her father boisterously exultant while her mistrustful mother looked positively frightened when she caught herself sharing their gaiety. Monsieur de la Roche would gladly have remained at home all day to talk over Sylvie's triumph and lay plans for the future, but he had promised the notary to complete some important copying, and besides he longed to inform his patron that he might provide himself immediately with a new assistant. Fortunate circumstances would place his present copyist above the need of pursuing his humble vocation after her father had gone forth sylvie instead of clearing away the breakfast remained seated contemplating her own hand as it lay upon the table before her what ails you sylvie inquired the mother i fear you are fatigued after all you are only just beginning to feel it that often happens and the fever may come yet oh no danger is it not pretty mother pretty a fever no i think not how wildly you talk i really believe you are getting light-headed sylvie laughed and held up her hand i never imagined it would be so pleasant to have a ring on one's finger but the ring must come off though that kind young lady charged me to wear it for her sake it must be put to a better use what is the child talking about she certainly is delirious part with your first token of public approval put it to a better use surely you are out of your head the ring must bring back maitre bougeot's violin that violin is more important to my dear master than the ring is to me but you do not propose to sell your ring no only exchange it for the violin i think i know at what pawnbroker maitre bougeot left his instrument in pledge i cannot form an estimate of the value of this ring but it may possibly be worth the seventy francs maitre bougeot raised on his old violin but you cannot get the violin without maitre bougeot's ticket don't you know that simpleton i suppose the ticket will be required of me by the pawnbroker but maitre bougeot certainly will not give it up for the purpose of making the exchange but i mean to try what i can do 
Do you not remember Maitre Bougeot said he went to a pawnbroker's near here? Let me go there with Mademoiselle Ursule. I will tell the whole story to the person who is in charge of the business. Mademoiselle Ursule will testify to the truth of my relation, and I will plead so warmly that possibly I may get the exchange made. You will get nothing for your pains, but I suppose the only way to satisfy you is to let you try, and I am dreadfully afraid of the fevers coming on if you should fret, so go and try what you can do, but make up your mind not to worry because you are refused a very unreasonable request. Sylvie quickly availed herself of her mother's permission to make the experiment, Ursule consented to accompany her, and they were soon on their way to the office. It was some time before they could get any satisfactory answer to their inquiries, but, at last, the man to whom they applied admitted that Maitre Bougeot's violin had been pledged there. Sylvie showed her ring, and cupidity sparkled in the, his eyes at the sight of the magnificent ruby. The ring was not only more valuable than the violin, but an article far more easily disposed of if it chanced not to be redeemed at the specified time. Sylvie told her story with an earnest simplicity which was full of eloquence, but her listener, though strongly tempted, was unwilling to agree to the unbusinesslike arrangement of giving up the violin without the ticket. Sylvie pleaded with irresistible warmth, a long consultation between the partners ensued. At last the violin was yielded up and the ring left in its place on the condition that Maitre Bougeot's ticket was returned before the night. Great was her mother's astonishment when Sylvie returned, carrying the violin, very much after the fashion that a young girl carries a baby, and laid it as tenderly on the table as Maitre Bougeot himself would have done. She hardly arranged the room, taken her seat at the piano, and warbled a few notes when Maitre Bourgeau's knock was heard at the door. She cried out, Enter! without looking around. Ah, little owl, up and playing the nightingale again? That's well. That shows you have more stamina than your looks imply. But what's this? He stopped immediately in front of the table. "'What is it? Why, your violin, my master,' answered Sylvie demurely. "'Do you not recognize your old friend? "'In return for it, you will just be good enough to hand me the ticket the pawnbroker gave you. "'It's mine.' Maitre Bougeot was not listening. "'He had opened the case of the violin. "'He was looking at the precious instrument. "'He took it up. He almost hugged it. "'His breast heaved tumultuously.' A sound like the rushing of waves issued from his lips as he drew the bow across the strings, which responded as the voice of their own to his emotion. Sylvie stood beside him, too respectful and too much touched to break the silence. But her mother, who anticipated an explosion of wrath, exclaimed, Sylvie did it. I told her she had better not. I told her it was no business of hers, but the willful girl would have her own way. 
How did she obtain possession of my property? How did she dare to meddle with my affairs? asked Bougeot, recovering himself in his roughest tone. Those villainous pawnbrokers! How could they have the harditude to entrust what was mine to another without my order? I shall go to them at once. I'll teach them a lesson. You will not do anything so wrong, my dear master, answered Sylvie quietly. I am the only one to blame. Was I not right to repay my debt the very first moment that I could? But what you could not, that's the difficulty. By what means of repaying it had you? Sylvie did not reply. She was intimidated by the severity of his look. Do you intend to answer me? You had a violin. It was your sole valuable. I had a ring. It was my sole valuable. You gave up your violin for me. I gave up my ring for you. Surely the barter is a fair one, and simple enough. There's nothing very wonderful about the transaction. And do you suppose that this is the use you are to make of gifts bestowed upon you by high people? Do you know what consequences this may lead? Do you know what will be thought of you if you do not wear the token of esteem which a young lady of rank has conferred upon you? I shall wear it, Maitre Bougeot, by and by. I hope to redeem it. Do you forget that a new path is open to me, thanks to your unwearied instructions, and that I shall be able to earn my bread? How confident we have grown all of a sudden. One swallow does not make a summer. There is a vast difference between one night's triumph and the steady maintaining of your position. Ah, there is, ruefully responded Madame de la Roche. I said we were rejoicing too soon, growing before dawn. Sylvie's just like her poor father, takes everything for granted, and has found a fortune if she picks up a sou. You almost make me wish she might never find anything that would rob you of the satisfaction of perpetual whining, snarled Bougeot. Maitre Bougeot, my mother, began Sylvie. There, there, that's enough about it, child. I am going to give back the violin at once, and to get your ring. I suppose two can play at that game. Sylvie's countenance changed. She looked not merely sad, but hurt, and answered with dignity that became her well. Of course, you will do as you please, but it will wound me deeply. I have no right to dictate to someone who is vastly my superior. I am your debtor in all senses of the word, but if you would allow me the pleasure of feeling the first faint foreshadowing touch of an independence which I may hereafter obtain, you will keep your violin and give me the ticket, which I have promised to carry to the man who, through my representations, gave up the violin against his better judgment. Bougeot looked at her steadily for a moment, and if he did not smile, it was because he would not. There was a smile lurking in his eyes, which he forced away from his hard lips. He took a long pinch of snuff and replaced the box, drew out a little old discolored pocketbook, deliberately selected the ticket, 
threw it on the table, seized his violin, turned on his heel, and, without a word, left the room. When Sylvie and Ursule presented themselves again at the pawnbroker's, the sight of the ticket gave evident relief to the person whom Sylvie had argued into an irregular proceeding, which might have entailed unpleasant results. Sylvie now received a ticket for the ruby ring that had been left in pledge and departed well pleased. Maitre Bougeot returned some hours later. Sylvie at once remarked the satisfied air with which he took a seat, laying his violin on his knees, and rested his hands upon the case. I have seen Monsieur Lagrand. I had an appointment with him which I have just kept. Yes, I am glad. How do you know there is any cause for gladness? Your eyes told me. They talk faster than your tongue, my master. You will oblige me by not consulting my eyes, then. It's not decorous conduct for a young girl. Monsieur Lagrand has offered you an engagement. You don't look in the least astonished. I knew it before. That is not possible. How could you know it? Your eyes told me that, too. They are great tell-tales. Do you want to put me into a passion with your impertinence? Sylvie, my dear, do behave reasonably. You don't know what might happen if you did put Maitre Bougeot into one of his rages, broke in the mother. Bougeot had seated himself with his back to Madame de la Roche, who was sewing as usual at the window. He now wheeled abruptly around to face her. He was evidently on the point of giving vent to some violent outburst, but Sylvie laid her hand gently on his arm. The soft touch and her look of entreaty melted him. Without uttering a syllable, but with a great gulp, which seemed to swallow down many words, he wheeled round again. Monsieur Lagrand has offered us an engagement, remarked Sylvie, by way of taking up the thread of the discourse. That's right, child. Say, us, us. He has offered us another appearance, replied Bougeot proudly. He either thought it time to recognize my ability, or policy has induced him to show me some deference on your account. He has requested three songs from you, of my selection, and a solo on the violin from me. The concert, which he is now making arrangements, is to take place at the Salle Saint-Cécile, not at a private house as before. A light shadow passed over Sylvie's face at the last words. Of what was she thinking? Why would she have preferred to sing again at the Count Castellane's? Legrand has the whole management, including the payment of the artist. And he proposes to pay us? asked Sylvie. Two hundred francs, answered Bougeot, with ill-affected coolness. Two hundred francs? That's immense. No, it's very moderate remuneration. But you are a novice and have yet to earn celebrity. One is paid for reputation rather than for positive talent. Of the two hundred francs, one hundred will be yours. No, no, indeed, that would be unfair. Have you not instructed me for three years? My share must be very small. I will receive only enough to supply the immediate wants of my parents. The rest rightfully belongs to you. 
am I henceforth to be schooled by you? Are you to set up your judgment on all occasions against mine? I see you have plenty of spirit that will come out by and by and play the deuce with us. I tell you, I will make what agreement I please, and you will consent to it, whether it please you or displease you. Am I not the master, and are you not my pupil? Perhaps you desire to change places, or you would like to have some other master to deal with? Can you think I could so forget what I owe you? The first thing you owe me is obedience, and that's a debt I advise you to pay. Since we've settled that matter, now let us select the three songs. End of chapter 5